Jenny Lynn Sloan was my second cousin. She was born 44 years ago on April the 4th, 1977. Eight days after that, Jenny Lynn's tiny little heart stopped beating. No one ever explained exactly why to the parents who were my cousins there, her mother, my cousin Debbie, uh, asked me to conduct the funeral. Actually, just a matter of days ago, I conducted a graveside service for another tiny little girl. And you could see on every face in the audience the question, why? Why cut off these young children from life at such a tender age? An unknown Jewish writer once declared, and I think he's right, we human beings raise ourselves towards God by the questions that we ask him. And questions can be powerful. They have the ability to lift our attention up above. They can lift our eyes off ourselves. They can do a lot of things for us as we ponder and reflect on the unanswerable things of life. Questions can lift our eyes, though, to somebody who does know the answers. And one of the most important questions any of us can ask ourselves as we live is, well, what about this thing called death, this appointment that we have? It's an inevitable and significant event in our lives. A trial, if you please. We all have an appointment with it. Last week, we began by answering some questions about death that face all of us. Questions like, well, what is it? Does everybody die? And what happens when you die? And, and this morning, I want us to take a look at five more questions that death will leave on your doorstep sooner or later. So here's the first one. What about suicide? Question number one. For many of us, uh, our Sunday will come to a close uh, with maybe supper and relaxation and comfortable rest in our own beds. But for 130 other people, it'll not end that way. Nor will it end that way for their friends or their family. Why? Because these 130 individuals will have committed suicide. According to the Center for Disease Control, there's one death by suicide in America every 11 minutes. There'll be three before I finish this message. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States for all ages. And more and more, I think, as our world struggles with how to cope with the pressures and the, and the problems and the difficulties and all the things happening around us, all the anger. More and more and more, our lives and our children's lives are going to be touched by this kind of death. And so it raises some questions. Well, what kind of, what, what kind of people do this? What's going on inside of them? How, why do they do it? Some will ask, well, is this an unforgivable sin? So I want us to turn to God's word always for answers to the trials of life and the difficulties. And the Bible records cases of several people who took their own lives. For example, King Saul was one. There was a man named Ahithophel, a counselor to King David. 
and Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples. And from these individuals, we can make three observations, and these are important observations. All right, number one, believers as well as non-believers take their own lives. Number two, excruciating circumstances often surround the person who commits suicide. And observation number three, in the cases of Saul and Judas, it would seem from Scripture that there was some kind of a satanic or demonic influence on what they had done. We know that Satan is both a murderer and a liar, according to John chapter 8, verse 44. And since both Saul and Judas uh, had been involved with uh, uh, demonic activity and Satan, it stands to reason that they could have been deceived into destroying themselves by the father of lies. Now, of course, there's many other reasons a person might choose to take their own life. Hopelessness, feelings of despair, loneliness. And we've already talked about depression already in this series. But regardless of the reasons, for a Christian, to take away a human life is up to the one who gave it, not up to humans themselves. Psalm 139.13 reads, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them ever came to be. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul very bluntly declares as he speaks to believers, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You have been bought at a price. Therefore, honor, honor God with your body. Now, a question that haunts a lot of believers is, do people who commit suicide lose their salvation? I mean, many have had their grief, I think, uh, unnecessarily compounded by the unbiblical idea that suicide is the unpardonable sin. Now, here's what I would say to that. We certainly know that believers do not lose their salvation because of certain kinds of sin. And suicide is a sin, as it is in a sense, it's the murder of yourself. But adultery and murder of someone else are equally serious sins. And we know of a king named David who committed both of those. And yet he did not lose his salvation because of it. We also know from Romans 4, chapter 7, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who sinned, the Lord will never count against him. The precious blood of our Lord Jesus on that cross cleanses us from all sin, including the sin of suicide. Question number two, which we've alluded to already. What about the death of little children? What happens to the baby who lives only a few hours or a few months? I mean, what is the destiny of a child who dies before being able to even know what's right or what was wrong? Before they reach the age of accountability. 
Let's take a look at the only case in the Bible that deals specifically with the death of an infant. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And it's the account of God's judgment on David with his, about his adultery with Bathsheba. And as we mentioned already, one of the most heartbreaking consequences of David's sin was the child of that union died. Yet nevertheless, from the time the child got sick until his death seven days later, you know, David prayed. He wept. He fasted, asking God to spare the child's life. But once that horrible week was over, David resumed his activities, went back to his work, and much to the amazement of his staff and all those in the palace. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 21 reads, His servant asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and you wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. And he answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept and I thought, Who knows? Maybe the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why why should I fast? Can, Can I bring him back again? And then listen carefully. David clearly identifies the destiny of this child when he says, I will one day go to him, but he will not be able to return to me. For the child was already in the very presence of the Lord. Where David himself would go, he knew when he died. All right, now question number three. Don't you just love these sermon series on death? Uh, I found myself as I started this, as I was looking over this this morning, I thought, I wonder if I could just chop it up in three or four pieces so it wouldn't be so long. And then I realized, well, wait a minute, I have plenty of time this morning. And I'm really wanting to use all of it, but I'm going to be, try to be good, okay? What about cremation? That's a question that comes up a lot. And... Um, And there's reasons for that. In 2016, just over half, a little bit over half, 50.2% of Americans chose cremation, while 43.5% opted for burial. According to a report from the National Funeral Directors Association, I assume those people know this stuff, they project that by the year 2040, the percentage of people choosing cremation is expected to surpass 70%, while conventional burials will keep, keep decreasing till around 16%. Primary number one reason people opt for cremation is that it costs less than a traditional burial. Now, since the Bible does not specifically deal with the issue of cremation, Let's, let's look at a few related issues and attempt to draw some conclusions. The Bible records several occasions where people uh, were burned alive, and it, it was called passing through the fire, and it was part of pagan worship and idolatry when it ever shows up in Scripture. But there's another reason in Scripture for some people going through this, and it was in connection with disobedience. In those cases, God brought fire down on these individuals as a judgment. In the book of Numbers, in the 11th chapter, Genesis in the 19th chapter, we see this. Now, of course, this is not cremation. But it is interesting to note that the the association of fire with the body seems to be kind of connected to disobedience. But throughout the Bible, burial seems to be the predominant method of caring for the dead. Abraham buried Sarah. Jacob buried his wife, Rebecca. When Moses died, God even used the method of burial to take care of his body. 
Two cases of burial found in the New Testament were Lazarus and the Lord Jesus himself. Now, having said all that, let me say this. There is no Bible verse, no biblical reference for or against cremation for Christians. And that's why there are some Christians who, you know, they, they're kind of leery about it, but they, you know, they, they, they don't know whether they should or shouldn't. Some religions even forbid it. For example, if you're a devout Jew, cremation is prohibited by the law uh, for them. But what I found, and this really encouraged me, I think, today, I, I found a, an article from Focus on the Family. You may remember this organization. Been around forever. Dr. Jim Dobson founded this. And they had a very thoughtful response to this issue, and I want to share it with you. Here's what they wrote. For our part, we don't believe that cremation needs to be viewed as a spiritual issue. One could just as easily argue that the custom of burial in ancient Israel was nothing more than a reflection of the Bible's cultural context. It's true, of course, that the resurrection of the body is one of the most important aspects of salvation in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Nevertheless, the fact remains that all physical bodies will suffer disintegration, whether through decay or through fire. The idea that God cannot resurrect them in the one case as well as the other doesn't hold any water in the word of God. He does not need our specific ashes. He does not need our chemical components to bring about our resurrection. Because according to 1 Corinthians 15, 44, the resurrected body is a new spiritual creation. And you know what? I can't wait to get mine. I have been... uh, having trouble with this body. I've got a a knee that doesn't work very well. I'm supposed to have a knee replacement. Uh, Can't see, always have. I was born with glasses. First time they'd ever seen it in the history of Kentucky. And I've always worn them, can't see anything without them. I've got hearing aids, I can't hear anything. And uh, that works out pretty good from time to time, you know. Uh, But, um, you know, As I get older, I begin to think, okay, Lord, you know, can we have a little break here, you know? And I haven't gotten it yet, but I'm looking forward to it. But as we we age, you know, it's important to have something to kind of look forward to, I think. And I was so appreciating what Focus on the Family said. I mean, they uh, they hit right to the heart of the, the issue was we're going to get a new body. Praise the Lord, as the song says. I'll have a new body. Praise the Lord. You know? and, uh, and I can't wait. I really can't. I want my basketball body back. <laughs> yeah, I don't have it. It's gone. There's no jump shot. It's, just, it's a fade away. <laughs> you know, I do those real easy. But anyway, that, that's that question about cremation. So we solved that one. Okay, question number four. What about reincarnation? Now, that's, you may think that we shouldn't even be talking about that, but I ran across a disturbing uh, fact here. Um, of course, reincarnation is the belief that the soul or the spirit comes back from beyond to re-inhabit another body, you know. And uh, on, on the surface, you know, that, that, that might not sound like a bad deal if your body's a mess, you know. You're going to get a better one. But the, the word in reincarnation literally means you're entering the flesh Again, 
And the idea is that an imperishable soul exists in every human being and comes back on this earth after death in a new form. And by the way, that can be a glorious body, or you could come home, you could come back as a rat, you know. I mean, it could be any kind of body, in a sense. Reincarnation teaches that the fate, I've got y'all thinking about that, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Concentrate, pay attention, okay. Reincarnation teaches the fate of every person in this life and in future lives is determined by the consequences of the good or bad things that you did in the past and present. Now, that is a word for it. It's called karma. Karma is a Hindu uh, theological concept that teaches that one spirit, by the way, can be reincarnated as many as 600,000 times. I mean, come on. I mean... We don't have the energy for that. But nevertheless, it's very, very, very popular in uh, other parts of the world. In fact, so much so, according to recent data released by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, not only do do 25% of Americans believe in reincarnation, but 24% of American Christians expressed a belief in reincarnation, even though the Bible clearly says... In Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But I was stunned that there were Christians that kind of built that into their religious thinking. Hopefully that's not anybody here. Question number five, what about prayers and baptism for the dead? Some religions teach that prayers for the dead should be offered in the hope of making the deceased uh, destiny uh, better or brighter. However, there's not one single verse in the entire Bible that teaches anything like this. There's also not one occasion recorded when someone prayed for the dead in a sense. However, The matter of baptism for the dead is discussed in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, this particular book, this is the greatest chapter in the Bible about the body, about what happens to our body. And the Apostle Paul's pretty direct here. Here's what he writes, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who were baptized for the dead? I mean, if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for it? Now, here's the context. If you know the context and understand it, then it makes sense. If you became a member in the early church back then, and even today in the modern church, the decision that you made to become a part of the body of Christ was certified or ratified or whatever by baptism. We, we, we baptize. We don't baptize you as a member of a church. You're baptized to be a part of the body of Christ, which is universal. And so we, we don't, people ask, well, you have to be baptized to be a member. I said, well, if you want to be a, be a Christian, then Jesus said, repent and be baptized every one of you. you know, that, that's, what, that, that's the idea, as he spoke through Peter. And so, but what happens in, you know, in some cases is that these Christians were, knew the Lord was going to return, but somebody had, had maybe not had a chance to be baptized. And so some very enterprising and helpful Christians we're offering to be baptized on behalf of somebody else. 
And they believed and hoped that the Lord returned those Christians who died would rise to be with him. Now, this is a good idea, I guess, in the minds of those who thought of it. But Paul never validated the practice. He never, in fact, he simply states it's something people were doing. Basically, he's saying, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then why do you folks bother being baptized for your friends that, that couldn't be baptized? Why are you doing that at all? It makes no sense. Now, we're almost done. Aren't you, aren't you excited? Towards the end of his life, Paul found himself in a Roman prison waiting to die for his beliefs in the Lord Jesus. Philippians 1, 21 through 24 is the record of his perspective that he wrote to the Philippian Christians and his thinking about death. Here was someone who knew his death was imminent and he had some things he wanted to share with these Christians. And he is speaking to Christians. You see, for Paul, his answer to the trial of death was very, very, very simple. Verse 21. For to me, he says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Now think about that. For him to live was just to be able to serve Christ and, and, and minister as, a, as a, an evangelist and as a, a disciple of Jesus. But to die, according to Paul, that's even better. It's even better to die. A woman was diagnosed with a terminal illness and had been given just a few months to live. So she contacted her pastor and he came over and they talked about her ideas about the funeral service and final wishes. And she told him that certain songs she wanted sung and, and uh, what the Bible verses were she wanted to have read. And then she requested to be buried with her Bible and so on. But as the pastor got ready to leave, she said, oh, one more thing. And you, some of you may have heard this, but she said, I'd like to be buried with a fork in my hand. Now that seemed a rather odd request. And she explained, in all my years of attending church social gatherings and potluck dinners, whenever the dishes were being cleared, somebody would inevitably lean over and say, hey, keep your fork. It was my favorite part of the meal because I knew something better was coming. Like one of Patty Spencer's cherry pies. <laughs> which was uh, absent from activity, as I thought I mentioned. Was, <laughs> we, uh, we fed a lot of people here yesterday, but not one person got any cherry pie. Cause, uh, and, and, and I kept my fork. Actually, I didn't because I didn't eat anything. Because there was no cherry pie. At the... <laughs> but anyway, she was, so when people see me in that casket, she says, with that fork in my hand, and they ask, well, what's with the fork? You just tell them she kept the fork because the best is yet to come. And that's an appropriate ending to this particular part of our series on trials. We can't get away from it. One out of one people's die. But one thing we can do is we can prepare ourselves for the moment that that happens. And my, I really trust, as your pastor, that you've all settled that. I really do. I spoke to one of our Christian individuals in our church yesterday, and uh, he's getting older in years. And uh, it was hard for me to see him 
having aged uh, so much since the last time I've seen him. And uh, yet as we talked, you know, the, it was just a sense of peace. I don't know how long things will take. I don't know if he's got been given a timetable by anybody or not as far as his years yet to come or moments. But as I drove away, I thought, what a change I saw in him physically from the last time I saw him. I mean, a major change. You know, this old body wears out. And it's not pretty. <laughs> not easy. But I drove away asking God to bless him and encourage him. And my prayer would be that for any of us, that we'd be ready to go whenever the time comes. Because we don't know the moment. We have no idea. We have no idea what tomorrow brings. Ten minutes from now, we don't know. So pretty sobering. Now we have a couple more of these questions we're going to deal with. And then we're going to end this series. And uh, hopefully you'll have, uh, have gained some insight from that. Let's all stand together. Heavenly Father, thank you for us. That you loved us so much that you gave Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you made a way for us that we could not provide or create on our own. And so, Lord, I ask that as a congregation, we, we, we be sober about this, that we give some thought to it. Uh, we have an appointment. Many people we know and love have already kept that appointment. Ours is sometime in the future. Could be a ways off, could be immediate. So Lord, help us to know your will and heart and help us know Jesus' love for us. That he was not willing that any of us should perish, but that we'd have everlasting life. He was not willing that we should, any of us perish without the opportunity to know him, to know his Father and to spend our lives in eternity with them. Help us, Father, not be jaded or take any of this lightly. Just help us remember that it kind of makes sense. By all rights, we shouldn't even be here. The life we have in our bodies is miraculous and amazing. The fact we have bodies, the fact we have minds, the fact we have hearts and emotions and feelings and, and all these things... You know, animals don't necessarily have. Only humans are gifted uniquely to respond to you. And Lord, help us to do so. Encourage us. Because many, many, many people have never submitted their lives to you. They've never acknowledged you as Lord and Master of their lives. And if there be those listening to this prayer, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would... You would have the burning of their heart. Let it burn within them as it did with those in the New Testament when they heard the gospel. I pray you'd help us all, Father, to be serious about the things we need to be serious about. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name.